0: If you need a Bible, slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. John 19. We are in a the second part of a three-part series. As we following along in John's Gospel, we've looked at the trial. We're going to look at uh, the crucifixion today, Lord willing, and then next week, again, Lord willing, the resurrection. There's a lot about the crucifixion, a lot that you may not pick up as you read through that, so hopefully we're going to be able to unpack this, we're going to look at it from every angle that time will allow, I think we have two hours I was told, so let's jump right into this in John 19 beginning in verse 17, and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now John writes that after Pilate sentences sentences Jesus, that Jesus bears his cross and carries it to Golgotha. Mark, Luke, and Matthew all write that Simon the Cyrenian carries his cross to Golgotha. Luke writes, now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man named Simon a Cyrenian who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So, we come to a contradiction in the Bible. No, not really. There's no question of who carried the cross. They both did. They both did. Notice that Luke writes that Simon carried the cross after Jesus. In the Greek, that means to come from behind or come up from the back. And so, Simon was voluntold. Anybody who's ever served in the military know what that word means. Simon was voluntold that he had to come up behind Jesus and help him bear some of the weight of the cross. Now remember, Jesus had been scourged to within an inch of his life. And that happened just before he was, the cross was placed on his shoulder. And so he's in such a weakened condition at that point that he had a hard time carrying the cross. The Romans did this with the intent that that beating would weaken you so much it would hasten your death on the cross. So there was a reason for them beating the condemned before they picked up the cross. So Jesus is such a weakened condition that they, he's probably moving slowly. He may have even stumbled and fell a few times. And so he was moving a little too slow for the Roman soldiers. So they they get Simon, they grab him out of the crowd, and forcibly make him carry the cross with Jesus. Now, there's some fascinating studies about whether Jesus carried the whole cross, and you've all seen the pictures of him carrying the cross beam with his arms kind of over top of it, right? And it kind of it's kind of his arms are kind of strapped or tied to the cross beam. But I think John's eyewitness testimony here, and I remember John was at the crucifixion, is more than proof enough that Jesus carried the cross because John says he carried the cross. He didn't say he carried the cross piece. He said he carried the cross. Now, many experts have argued for years that he only carried the cross beam. That cross beam, by the way, is called the patabellum. It's called the patabellum in in Latin. And so they've argued that he couldn't possibly have carried the whole cross because of the sheer weight of the cross. That patabellum alone weighed 125 pounds. The stipes, which is the Latin word for the, the upright part of the cross, weighed 250 pounds by some estimates. So the cross alone was anywhere from 350 to 375 pounds. And I can tell you personally, that is a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight to push on a bench. It's a lot of weight to carry. And even a man in great shape would have had a hard time carrying that cross up a hill on cobblestone streets, rough human rock, in his bare feet. Even Simon in sandals coming alongside him, the two of them together would have had a hard time carrying that cross because Jesus would have been too weak to take up his half of that cross, so most of that weight would have been transferred to Simon. Modern science, got to love modern science, believes that they have evidence that Jesus only carried the parabellum and they use the shroud of torin anybody ever heard of the shroud of torin they use that as their evidence they say that the stains on the shroud mark where the crossbeam would have laid across jesus's shoulders now for those of you who don't know what the shroud of torin is it's supposed to be the linen cloth that jesus was wrapped in and that upon the resurrection the radiation or whatever however they describe it from jesus's body emblazoned his imprint on the shroud forever it's it's quite a thing if you look it up on the internet. They've even they've even developed a plaster cast of what Jesus would have looked like laying in the tomb from that shroud. Now, I'm not promoting this. Please understand that. I'm not promoting it. I'm just presenting an interesting piece of information that you can interpret for yourself. And I'm merely giving you the reasons why they believe what they believe. First, The whole cross would have been too heavy and Jesus was too weak to carry it. And second, the blood stains on the Shroud of Turin, to them, tells them that he only carried the cross piece. Advancements in modern science have now proven the opposite. That Jesus carried the entire cross. But we already knew that, didn't we? Because John told us that was the the case. So what about the weight of the cross? Well, they found a patabellum from that time period. They believe it was from the cross of the good thief. How they know that, I don't know. But the fact that they have one of these is impressive enough as it is. That only weighs 45 pounds. Now, if you add the stipes into that and you add a few pounds extra, maybe that's a little disintegrated over time. The cross was probably roughly over 100 pounds total. And so although it still would have been a struggle in his weakened condition... Together with Simon, they carried the cross to the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Now, we don't know much about Simon other than he is a Cyrenian. He is from Cyrene, which is an area which is today present Libya. We know that Cyrene was a home for a large number of Greek Jews, um, Hellenistic Jews, and they would have been Familiar to Mark's readers, because Mark tells us a little bit more about Simon, that he had a son, they had sons, Rufus and, and Alexander. Now Rufus may be, the son of, of Simon, Rufus may be the same person Paul greets in his letter to the Romans. And if that's the case, then maybe that family came to know Christ from this experience. We don't know, I'm Just we're just speculating here. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot about Simon, other than the fact that he was compelled to, by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ to Golgotha. And I got to tell you, if he stuck around and saw what everyone else knows to have happened in the gospel accounts, it had to have had a lasting impact on his life. It had to have. Golgotha in the Aramaic means place of the skull. In Latin, it's called cava or bald head, which I can relate to. We. Or skull, it's a word for skull. We get our word Calvary from that Latin word. So that's where Calvary comes from. And it sits just outside of Jerusalem. From that place, from the place of the skull, you can see the garden tomb where Jesus has laid the rest. Now, I was blessed to see this when I went to Israel. And those who are going to Israel this next trip are going to be able to see this as well. Here's a a sad, sad commentary on that place. It used to be, it used to sit all by itself, now they've let, it's become a parking lot for buses. And as the buses sit there and the exhaust runs, it's actually disintegrating the face of that skull. Just to throw that in there, but pray about that. I mean, we're thankful that they've, a lot of these organizations have purchased these sites because we still have them today because of that. But by letting those buses run there, it's really destroying that site. As Jesus hung there on the cross, from that place, if you looked over to the right, you could see the garden tomb. You could see the garden where that tomb was, that Jesus would be buried. The Catholics, however, and a lot of other groups believe that Jesus was, the, the rock that Jesus was crucified on, and the tomb that he was laid in, is, there's, they've built a church around it. A church inside the walls of Jerusalem called the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I've been at both of these places. We visited both places, and I can tell you that I believe that Jesus was crucified on Golgotha. Then that's it, the place of the skull. I mean, there was nothing inside the Church of the Holy Sepulcher that even remotely resembled a skull. You You can't deny that that is a skull, the place of the skull. And the garden tomb where Jesus was laid, we saw where they laid his body, the actual tomb. And so again, whoever's going with us to Israel will see that for yourself. Um, he was definitely crucified, as scripture tells us, on Golgotha and laid in that garden tomb. John tells us in verse 18 that he was crucified not by himself, but there were two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Luke gives us a little bit more information. Luke 20, 23, verses 32 through 34 say, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus gets to the top of Golgotha. He's placed on the cross. His hands and feet are nailed into place. There's a platform that they install under the feet of the condemned called the settle. And it would be placed at the feet so that they could push up on it to draw a few breaths. And so as Jesus hangs there in agony, he calls out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus has been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been spit on. He's been nailed to a cross that would take his life. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive who? Forgive the Roman soldiers who beat him, who drove the nails through his flesh. Forgive all those who advocated for his death and his arrest. The temple guards who arrest him and beat him and mocked him. Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, All of those who had any part in this whatsoever, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus came to this earth. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. He came to offer himself as a substitute for the sins of you and I, so that those sins would be forgiven. They didn't know this. Many of them that participated in the crucifixion that day didn't know this, didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know the world-shaking significance of what they were doing. But this is an amazing example uh, for us of God's mercy and grace, that even those who committed such a great injustice against the Son of God, against our Savior, can be forgiven. Jesus asking for forgiveness didn't absolve them of their sin. They still had to repent, but what it demonstrates is that no matter how egregious our sin is, that we're not beyond God's mercy, we're not beyond His grace, we're not beyond His forgiveness. By extension, this plea for forgiveness is for you and me. Because without our sin, the incarnation of Christ would not have been necessary. And if the incarnation would not have been necessary, then the crucifixion and death of Jesus would not have been necessary. We are just as responsible for those who were there for his death and crucifixion as they were. You know, when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, this is what he's talking about. The sacrifice, the commitment, all of that, the obedience is all part of that. If we are truly his disciples, when, when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, this is what we're to do. This is what should be in the back of our mind. That we are committed to him. That we are going to be obedient to him. That we're going to pick up our cross and follow him no matter what. That we're willing to make that sacrifice. That's what it means to pick up our cross and follow him. And by Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, he's saying to all of us, no matter what we have done, no matter how far we have strayed, no matter how long we've stayed there, If we repent and turn to him, our sins will be forgiven. And that truth is so beautifully illustrated on on Calvary that day, just as it's so beautifully illustrated in the prodigal son. Now Luke gives us a little bit more detail on the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. On Calvary that day was prophesied over seven hundred years earlier. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So Isaiah wrote that the Messiah at his death, would be counted among these two thieves. That he would bear the sin for many. He certainly has bore the sin for you and I. And that he would make intercession for these sinners, for us, no doubt, but also for the thief who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this was prophesied by Isaiah about the Messiah. Not knowing who Jesus was, not knowing who the Messiah would be, but Jesus fulfilled That prophecy and many others. Prophecy is God's signature on the Bible. Prophecy is God's signature that this was written by Him, that this is His word. God not only wrote His word, He signed it with prophecy. It's not a coincidence that 700 years after these words were spoken, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be crucified between two thieves. It's not a coincidence that he bore the sin, and the Bible tells us this, that he bore our sin, that he became sin for us, and that he interceded for us because we could not do it on our own. It's no coincidence that all the events surrounding the crucifixion were promised hundreds of years before they actually occurred, because it was all part of God's plan. God's plan was the salvation of mankind. And if you read this Bible which was written over a 1,500-year time period by 40 different authors, 66 different pages, 66 different chapters, rather, in three different languages on three different continents, written by some people who knew one another and some people who were separated by hundreds and hundreds of years and never knew one another, you would think that this would just be a nice compilation of stories, but instead it has one consistent theme from Genesis to Revelation, and that is the salvation of mankind through a Savior. How amazing is that? It is truly God's word, and it could only be God who did this in such a divine way. There's no coincidence about what happened here this day. This is all part of his plan of salvation, and his signature is all over it. God left nothing to chance this day on Calvary. All the circumstances surrounding the crucifixion, the two men that were crucified with Jesus, all of the other circumstances were preordained by God before the foundation of the world. Even the fact that there wasn't just one cross on Calvary today. Did you ever stop and think about that? Jesus is the focal point of the crucifixion. Why were there two other men hanging on other side of him? Why wasn't Jesus the only one on Golgotha that day? Those three crosses illustrate a spiritual truth about salvation. Those three crosses represent the fate of all mankind. You see, on the cross in the middle hung Jesus, who took the sin of all mankind upon himself to that cross. He had the sin of the world on him, but he had no sin in him. On one side of Jesus hung the thief who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. When he died, he died with all the sin that he committed on him and in him, and therefore he would not escape the punishment for that sin. And we all know what the punishment for sin is. It's death, eternal death. This man's death on the cross may have satisfied his debt for the crime he committed, But it could never satisfy the wages that he owed for the sin that he had committed. On the other side of Jesus hung a thief who asked to be remembered when Jesus entered into his kingdom. He died with sin in him, his sin nature, but he had not a trace of sin on him. Because when Jesus died on that cross, he washed his sin away. His sin was washed clean and he was forgiven. So God used those three crosses to show us what salvation is all about. It's the story of salvation. That Jesus came to die on the cross to put the sin of all mankind to death on that cross with him. And that no matter how far we've strayed, no matter what we've done, no matter how long you've been a sinner, if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible tells us you will be saved. In the case of the one thief, he accepted the fact that he was guilty for the sin that he committed. He knew that he deserved death. He knew that that should be his fate. But because he acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord, he received God's grace on that cross. He got what he didn't deserve. He deserved death. What he received was eternal life. And we will see him When we get to heaven, he is today, as Jesus promised him, in heaven with Jesus for all eternity. The other thief, he represented a, a sad reality the majority of this world today. He did not acknowledge his sin. He did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. And so like many others in this world today who don't believe they're guilty of any sin, and have never acknowledged their sin, they've never acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when they die in their sin, they will be separated from God for all eternity. And so that's why there's three crosses on Calvary. It's a vivid illustration of God's plan of salvation for the world. And that plan includes repentance. We can never preach salvation without the word repentance. Repent Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, or die in your sin and be separated for all eternity. There is no other choice, and those three crosses illustrate the only two choices we have, Jesus or separation from Jesus. That's it. Look at John 19, verse 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews, Pilate answered. What I have written, I have written. So the sign that Pilate affixes to the cross is in no doubt in reference to what he had asked Jesus. Jesus he asked, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, You rightly say, I am a king. So there's two times in, in the scriptures where Jesus is called king of the Jews. And each time, it's by a Gentile. When the Magi first came to where the child was born, where the star was leading them, they said, Where is he who has been born king of of the Jews Matthew 2 verse 2 Pilate says behold your king he is the king of the Jews so the Jewish people the Jewish people who Jesus came for had rejected him as their king and that was in the first time that they had rejected God as their king in first Samuel remember the people wanted a what a king like the nations around them right And so Samuel was upset because Samuel was the judge. He wasn't a king, but he was the judge. He was ruling over them. And so he was upset that the people had rejected him as their judge. But God said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The people wanted their own king. They wanted a king just like the nations around them, they wanted this conquering hero. So God gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them Saul, the tallest, the handsomest man among in all of Israel. He gave them what they wanted. He was a man of the people, Saul. The problem was he wasn't a man of God. People today want the same thing. They want their own king. They don't want Jesus as Lord of their lives. They want their own king. They want to be their own king. They want to rule their own lives. They don't want anyone else sitting on the throne but them. For Christians, Jesus is Lord, and you've heard this before, but it always bears repeating. He's Lord. He's the King. But if He's not Lord of all of our lives, then He is not Lord at all. For many, in Jesus' day, that word King of the Jews would carry with it a political connotation. They were looking for a conquering hero. They were looking for someone to come in and free them from the oppression of Rome. They were looking for someone to lead them in battle against the Roman invaders. And Jesus did not fit that description. Jesus was not the king that everyone else had in mind. So they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, be done with him, get him out of here. We don't want him. He is not our king. Many today have done the exact same thing. Many today want to mold Jesus into their image. What they want Jesus to be like. My Jesus would be a Republican. My Jesus would be a Democrat. My Jesus would be a progressive. My Jesus is a liberal. My Jesus is a conservative. Listen, the only title that Jesus answers to is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, period. Period. And if you want to know what Jesus stands for, read the book. It's in there. Read it. Jesus isn't looking to be molded into the image of what we think he should be. He wants us to be molded into his image. Amen? Amen. So Matthew tells us that the king hung on the cross. And those who rejected him as king mocked him. And those who passed by blasphemed him, Matthew 27. Wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Notice the heart between, be, behind those words. They want proof. They want proof that Jesus is the Son of God. They want proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Mind you, he's raised people from the dead. He's healed the blind and the lame from birth, meaning he's restored their not only their sight, but the very veins and muscles and all of the things it takes to have sight. The same with the the legs, the bones, the muscles, all of the things that it takes to walk. Jesus restored it as if he were creating them as they would have been created in the womb. That wasn't proof enough for these people. He himself would rise from the dead three days from now and still that would not be enough proof. Remember Father Abraham said to the rich man who found himself in that great gulf that separated heaven from hell or heaven from... That place of torture. And he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't suffer the same fate as I do. And and Abraham said to them, they will not be persuaded even if one should rise from the dead. These people who mocked Jesus were so caught up in themselves that they couldn't understand that Jesus' whole purpose for coming to this earth was to die on that cross. That was the reason he was born. So that he could die, and yes, he would save others. He would save others by that very cross that he was hanging on that day. Only the Son of God could offer eternal payment in exchange for eternal life. They couldn't understand that Jesus could have easily come down off of that cross anytime he wanted to. But because he loved us so much, you and I, so much, That he stayed. He suffered. He paid the price for our sin. Have you ever considered why the cross? Why a cross? And why Rome? Why that particular time? Well, let's look at those two things. First, why the cross? In Numbers 21, the people had sinned. And God sent snakes, serpents, as a judgment against that sin. Many people died as a result of being snake bit that day. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. They acknowledged their sin. And Moses prayed to God and God told them to make a bronze fiery serpent and attach it to the pole and lift the pole up. And anyone who looked to that pole, to that serpent, to the judgment, would be saved. So fast forward some 1400 years and Jesus said... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three fourteen fifteen. 15. Before the people sinned in the desert, God had already had a plan in place to save them. The lifting up of the bronze serpent represented judgment. Bronze in in the scriptures represent judgment. And all those people were under the judgment of God for their sin. And when they looked to that pole that God had told Moses to, to lift up, they were saved. God already had a plan in place to save them. God already had a plan in place to save us before the foundation of the world. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin in the garden. He already had put a plan in place and that plan was revealed, got a little taste of that, with Moses in the desert. That he would send his son to be lifted up on a cross. That he would pay the judgment for our sin. That all who look to him, who look to Jesus Christ, who look to the cross of Christ, will be saved. All those who look to Jesus, who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, will not perish. Part of that plan that God made before the foundation of the earth included when Jesus would be born. He would be born in a period of time when the method of execution would be the lifting up of someone upon a cross. For Jesus to die any other way than to be lifted up the way he was would have made no sense when he made this reference to Moses in the desert. But in God's plan of salvation, this all comes together. It all makes sense. It all comes together an amazing picture of salvation for us at the judgment there will be no excuse the message of salvation and what it means has been clearly presented throughout the gospels so why Rome why that particular time why that particular time period in history so remember we have to always remember that God's ways are not our ways that God's thoughts are not our thoughts But what we do know for certain is that when Jesus was born and where he was born was the perfect time and place according to God's plan. Paul wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So with that said, please allow me some room as we share some common thoughts as to why Rome and why that particular time. First of all, the Jews were under oppression by Rome. Rome was occupying Judea, and there was a great anticipation at that time, just like in Egypt, that the Messiah would come. More importantly, this particular time was prophesied by the prophet Daniel that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem at a very specific time and a very specific date. And this was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, as prophesied by Daniel the exact time, the exact day, the exact place. The fullness of time had come. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. Second, travel in that time period had greatly increased. Rome had unified much of the world under its government, and it opened up trade routes between much of the conquered areas that they had taken over. You know the old saying that all roads lead to Rome? Well, that was true because they constructed all those roads that led to Rome. And so it made the ease of, it made traveling that much easier, and therefore it made the spreading of the gospel that much easier. Third, communication had been improved. One commentator commentator said, while Rome had conquered militarily, Greek had conquered culturally. There was a common form of Greek language, different from classical Greek. It was like a, a Koinonia Greek, and it was a language that was spoken among all the tradespeople. It enabled them to all do business with one another so they'd all understand one another. So different people groups, different cultures could understand. And so from God's perspective, this was the perfect time to spread the gospel message. And Rome was the perfect place. Look at verse 23 of John 19. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also a tunic, Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did did these things. This was also prophesied. Psalm 22 tells us, They pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So we know there was at least four Roman soldiers present that day on Calvary. I'm sure there was much more, but we know of these four from the scripture. And so each soldier would receive a part of the condemned's clothing. The condemned would be stripped Down, all their clothing would be taken, and they would split it up between them. It would be kind of the spoils of war for them. So to one went his sandals, to one went the girdle that he wore, to another went the talith, which is the prayer shawl with the fringes, and someone else would get his belt. Jesus also had an outer garment, a tunic, and that was sewn in one piece, which made it a very expensive, very well-made garment that they did not want to tear, so they decided to cast lots to see who would win that prize. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross in agony, in sheer agony, and these guys are below him gambling for his clothes. They're like jackals fighting over a kill. As Jesus is hanging there, pushing up on that, that plate to draw another breath, they're fighting over his clothing. Now there stood by the cross with Jesus' his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, by the way, that disciple is John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So the woman that God had chosen to bear his son, to raise him as an infant, to nurse him as an infant, to take care of him and teach him as a toddler, had to watch her son tortured to death on the cross. For all you moms out there, you can imagine the heartache that Mary felt that day. And Jesus, always thinking of others, never thinking of himself, said, John, behold your mother. And he said to his mother, Mary, Mary, behold your son. Jesus was obedient to the law even to the end. The law called for a son to take care of his parents. But even if there had been no law that said you must take care of your parents, for a woman in that time period period rather to have no husband or no son to take care of them, they would struggle. They would be homeless. They would be starving on the streets. So Jesus, not wanting his mother to struggle, In one of the last things he says on the cross makes arrangements for his mother to be taken care of. And so Matthew tells us what happens next. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and, taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. So for three hours, from noontime to 3 p.m., so this is the height of the day. This is when the sun would have been the brightest, when it would have been light outside, a darkness covered the land. Many have argued this away as saying it was simply an eclipse of the sun. So let me tell you two very good reasons why this was not an eclipse. It was not a solar eclipse. The Passover is always observed at a time when the full moon is out. And that makes an eclipse of the sun impossible. So here's a little science lesson for you this morning. A total eclipse of the sun or a solar eclipse can only occur during the new moon phase of the moon. When the moon is in the full moon phase, the full moon is on the complete opposite side of the lunar cycle. It's the furthest away from the sun. So therefore making an eclipse, a total eclipse of the sun, impossible during the full moon. The second reason why this is not an eclipse is the fact that the total, a total eclipse of the sun lasts for all of about seven minutes. This lasted for three hours. Three hours. This darkness can only be explained one way. This darkness that covered the whole land was from God. God covered the land with darkness. In the Old Testament, we see darkness covering the land as a sign of what in Egypt? Judgment. Judgment covered the land of Egypt Egypt in the form of darkness. And what happened right after that plague? The death of the firstborn sons. As darkness covered the earth that day, I believe it was a darkness just like in Egypt. A darkness so thick that you could actually feel it. During that dark time on this earth, during that dark period, God was pouring out his wrath upon his son on the cross. He was pouring out his wrath upon the sin of all mankind as Jesus hung there. In that darkness, the penalty for our sin was being paid by Jesus. As Jesus became sin for us, God turned his head from him. As God is so holy, he can't even look upon sin, causing Jesus for the first time in his life to not feel the presence of his father. As he said, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This darkness that God used upon the face of the earth was his way of illustrating for us that our sin will bring his judgment. And without Jesus, we're going to face that wrath alone. And that our sin separates us from him. That into the outer darkness, the Bible tells us, we will be cast, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God used the darkness that covered the land that day as a vivid illustration for us this morning. And so the only way to avoid that judgment, the only way to avoid the wrath of God is to come to Jesus, who took our judgment for our sin and paid the price for us. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put a hyssop on it, and put it to his mouth. So Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Luke says, and when he... When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. These are the last two statements that Jesus made from the cross. He made seven statements in all, and we've covered all of them here this morning, except for these last two. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He said to John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Fourth, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth thing he said was, I thirst. And the sixth is, it's finished. And number seven, into your hands I commit my spirit. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, two of the most important statements ever spoken on this earth are, it is finished and he has risen. Lord willing, we're going to look at that second statement next week, but let's look at the last two statements Jesus made on the cross here this morning. First, it is finished. Now, much has been written, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail about it. Much has been written on this word, this phrase alone. It is finished. But for us as believers, the most important meaning for us is that He came to offer Himself as a penalty as a payment for our sin. He did that on the cross. It is finished. Our sins are finished. They are forgiven. They are washed clean. He took them to the cross. He nailed them there so that we would be forgiven. He did that. It is finished. It is finished, meaning that there's nothing that we can add to this. There's nothing that you and I can do to make this any more done than it is done. It's not anything plus Jesus, is not works plus Jesus, it's Jesus and his finished work on the cross, period. And the second thing he said, the last thing he said, was into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus yields his living spirit to God the Father, and he yielded his body to death on the cross. And the, the meaning for that for us is that He gave up his life. He submitted his life. No one else took it up. No one took it from him. Jesus willingly gave it up. It wasn't forced. The difference between those two things is that one, he would have been forced. It would have been done at the will of someone else making his death compulsory. Second, the other way is that he willingly gave up his life, making his death an act of love. He willingly, lovingly gave up his life in an act of love for you and I. No one forced him to do it. And so Jesus breathes his last, and he dies. And Matthew gives us some details to what happens after that. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city, city and appeared to many. Now the centurion, those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they had saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this is the Son of God. You know, I find it strange that Gentiles, again, recognize that this is the Son of God. Even after all of this happens, the Jews still would not recognize that this is the Son of God. So there are four miraculous things that happened the day Jesus died on Calvary. First was the darkness that covered the earth. Second was the veil of the temple was ripped in two. Third, the earth shook. And fourth, the tombs were opened and the dead raised. Let's look at those last three. So the veil of the temple is torn in two. I don't know if you, if you know this or not, but the veil, the veil we're talking about is the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, of course, is the place where only the high priest would enter into once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the, the mercy seat for atonement for the sins of the people. That veil, that curtain, was actually 60 feet tall and 4 inches thick. Any of you ladies do any sewing? you imagine sewing through four inches of material? It didn't just tear. It wasn't a little rip in the seam. It was ripped in half from top to bottom like you'd rip a piece of paper. No human could possibly do that. Not even the earthquake that day would have ripped the veil of that temple like that. There's only one explanation for that. That God himself reached down from heaven and ripped that veil from top to bottom. Why? God is saying to us, now you can come to me directly. You have access to me. The death of my son on the cross has given you access. No longer do you need a high priest to to intercede for you. My son, Christ Jesus, is your high priest, and he has interceded for you. He's paid the price for your sin once and for all. It is finished. You can now come to me into my throne of grace to find mercy, to find grace, to help you in your time of need. And my question for everyone, including myself this morning, is why don't we do that more often? When you consider the, what it took for that to happen, and we have that access, we can come there anytime. time. Any time of the night or day, in any troubles, even in good times and in bad, we can go into that throne room of grace and have access to our Heavenly Father. Why don't we take advantage of that? Second, the earth quaked. The earth shook that day. Remember on Mount Sinai? When Moses was there getting the law of God, that that mountain was shaking. It was on fire. It was shaking. People were scared to death. Now many believe that the earth quaking that day was God telling the world that the law was now fulfilled. But whatever it was, it's God also showing us that he's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything and everyone on this earth. The earth quaked, marking the death of Jesus. And the earth will once again quake, announcing his return. Listen, if we're putting our trust and our faith and our hope in the things of this world, we're, we're, we're counting on this world for our security, there's going to come time in our life when, our, when that's going to be shaken to the very core. When what we have put our security and what we put our faith in is going to get shaken to the very core. And as Jesus said, if we built our house on sand... When the winds come, it's going to fall. When that storm comes, we're going to fall. But if our foundation is built on the rock, if our feet are firmly planted on the rock, when the winds come and the storms come, we will not be shaken. Third, the tombs were opened and the bodies raised from the grave. So the, the resurrection of the dead when Jesus died, is it tells us that there's victory now. There's victory over sin and death in the grave. The death has lost this thing that because he lives, we will live. And this is just a little taste, just a little taste of that resurrection day for all of us. Therefore, verse 31 of John, because it was a preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he he who has seen has testified, and this testimony is true, that he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe." For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says they shall look upon whom they have pierced. So here's further proof. As if we needed more proof and honestly some of us do sometimes. This is further proof that God was in control from beginning to end. That he's still in control. Crucifixion wasn't invented by the Romans. It was actually invented by the Persians. Rome took it and just, I don't want to say perfected it, but they truly did. They made it more torturous than even the Persians did. Jesus hung on the cross and his full body weight. Do you ever try that? Do you ever raise your arms up and just do this for a while? You could feel the pressure that comes across your chest. As you're hanging there and your weight, your body weight is pulling down and your arms are stretched up, it just constricts your whole chest cavity. You have a real difficult time of breathing. And that's what the condemned would die from, asphyxiation. If they didn't die from the shock of all of this, they would die from asphyxiation. Now, Rome often lined the streets of the city with crucified criminals. And it was a vivid example to anyone who even thought about coming against Rome or breaking the laws of Rome. These men were hanging there for you to see, sometimes even women. You could hang there for days, for days. Now, as you hung there for days, because as I said before, you know, you're, you're not getting a breath. So they would put that little platform there that you could push yourself up and get a breath or two. So if you could continue to do that, if you had enough strength to do that for a period of time, you could literally hang there for days. Days there without water, in the heat, weakened from the beating that you would receive before the crucifixion, I'm not sure very many made it days on the cross. But if the soldiers were in a hurry and they wanted to really speed up this process, they would take a club and would smash it against the shins of the condemned's legs, breaking their legs, Not, and they, they were no longer able to push up on that, that platform and they would quickly asphyxiate. When they came to Jesus... First they broke the legs of the two thieves with him and they died not long after that. And then they come to Jesus and they discover that he's already dead. Which fulfilled the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. So they wanted to make sure. Because Rome was very good. The Roman soldiers were very good at what they did. And no no condemned individual ever survived the crucifixion. If they did, it meant the death of all those involved. Every one of those Roman soldiers there that day would have been put to death had any one of them ever survived a death sentence. So they broke the legs of the two thieves and they come to Jesus and he's dead already. And just to make sure, one of the Roman soldiers thrust his spear into his side, which punctures the pericardial sac around his heart. Now for those who believe that Jesus survived the crucifixion, and was placed in the cool tomb, and because of the coolness of the tomb, revived and raised again. This, if you need any more proof, this is conclusive proof that Jesus died on the cross that day. As that spear punctured the pericardial sac around his heart, it ruptured that sac and it ruptured his heart. Now as he hung on that cross after the beating and all that had happened to him that day, that pericardial sac began to fill with water from that beating. And that's why water and blood poured out when he drove that spear into it. And that's how we know that it actually punctured that sack and ruptured his heart. So we know from the Gospels that Jesus is already dead. But if you need more proof than that, here it is. That spear makes it very clear that Jesus in no way survived the crucifixion that day. He was pierced, fulfilling the scriptures that one day those who pierced him would look upon him. And on that day, We will see Jesus as king. We will see him come to rule and reign on this earth. See, the cross wasn't the end. The cross is just the beginning. Satan had hoped that this would be the end. The Jews of the day had hoped that this would be the end. But this was just the beginning. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So Jesus suffered, died, and was buried. He endured the cross for you and I because it was the only way. Because he loved us and knew it was the only way. Because he knows that his Father is so holy that he can't look upon sin That in order for us to get to heaven, in order for us to see heaven, to see God the Father, we have to go through Him. He is the only way. When He said it was finished, what He meant was that an end had come to our sin. He had paid the price. It was finished. We had been set free. No longer does sin have a grip on us. No longer can can death sting us. It's finished. But what wasn't finished was the plan of salvation. You and I have now been charged, we've now been made responsible to spread the gospel message, to tell others about what Jesus endured and why, more importantly, why he endured it. So that we could have salvation, we could, have, we could be set free from our sins, that we could have eternity spent with him in heaven. That's what we've been charged to do, to spread the gospel message. It wasn't, what wasn't finished was the life of Jesus Christ because death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. He lives inside each and every one of us. He's in heaven waiting for us, preparing a place for us so that when we see him again, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. The cross, the tomb, wasn't the end. It wasn't the end. They are only the beginning. So please be with us next week as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like I said before, the most hopeful words ever spoken on this earth were the words, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? So let's rise up now and worship Him. Before we join the worship team before we partake in this last song together, or last two. Um, Is there anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior? That hasn't made that commitment to Him? Anyone here at all? I'd like to pray with you this morning so that you know that you know that you know that when you leave here today that your eternal salvation is secure. Anyone here? Let me ask another question. Anyone here who hasn't been picking up their cross and following christ who hasn't been walking with jesus maybe you're here this morning you'd like to rededicate your life to him maybe you're here this morning and you you want to make that commitment all over again and say lord i haven't been walking with you i haven't been following you but i want that to change here this morning i want to pick up that cross daily and follow hard after you anyone here this morning just slip up your hand anyone here Praise the Lord. We're all following Jesus closely. We're all walking with him and obeying him. How amazing is that? So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to endure the cross for us. Go before us this day. May we leave here more in love with you than when we came in. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys.